The House votes to impeach, again, but don't hold your breath on a Senate conviction, again. And is more violence on the way? We're hoping for the best, but bracing for the worst on The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you, add Ike to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 358 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. I wish I could tell you how many times I sat up the keyboard and started working on this week's show, only to stop and then try again, and then stop. How to explain the damage done to our body politic? I'm going to start with Saturday, January 2nd with the release of a taped phone conversation where President Trump pressured the Secretary of State of Georgia that he needs to come up with the number of votes that would give him the win in the Peach State. The President of the United States clearly trying to steal an election. And it was caught on tape. That was followed just days later with two unexpected victories by Georgia Democrats that cost Republicans the Senate. After that, a long-time perfunctory and usually ignored process of certifying electoral votes actually led a defeated president of the United States to urge his followers to march onto the Capitol to protest what he called a fraudulent and stolen election. A march that turned into a mob of insurrectionists, breaking down the doors of the Capitol, leading to the deaths of five people, including a Capitol police officer. That same president refusing to acknowledge responsibility or regret for his incendiary rhetoric. A fed-up House of Representatives, with its Democratic majority, voting to impeach said president for the second time in 13 months. A vote that included 10 Republicans, something we didn't see during the first impeachment. This all happened as we await the inauguration of Joe Biden and fear an outbreak of more violence. I don't know what I could say here about this month that hasn't already been said over and over again. But at the same time, I don't want to move on from it. Not just yet. I'm just not ready to. Because the horror of it all has yet to subside. A part of me is still shaking. I think I want to use this part of the program to replay some of the sounds from these events. Maybe one day in the future, we'll all look back and see how bad things were in the time leading up to the inauguration in 2021 and congratulate ourselves for surviving. That's what I'm hoping for. So here we go. If you went to bed early the night of Tuesday the 5th, January 5th, you wouldn't have known who had won in Georgia. By the time we woke up on Wednesday, we knew. The victories of Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff are, to the best of my knowledge, the first time control of the Senate has ever switched parties because of one state's election. Ordinarily, it would have been the biggest story of the week, little did we know. In the meantime, let's listen to Warnock, who defeated Kelly Loeffler, the Republican appointed to fill a vacant seat. So I come before you tonight as a man who knows that the improbable journey that led me to this place in this historic moment in America could only happen here. We were told that we couldn't win this election. 
But tonight, we prove that with hope, hard work, and the people by our side, anything is possible. May my story be an inspiration to some young person who is trying to grasp and grab hold of the American dream. And here's Ossoff, who unseated Republican incumbent David Perdue. Georgia, thank you so much for the confidence that you've placed in me. I am honored, honored by your support, by your confidence, by your trust. And I will look forward to serving you in the United States Senate with integrity, with humility, with honor, and getting things done for the people of Georgia. As it turned out, this was just the calm before the storm. Remember, Trump had already tried and failed to get the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, to come up with the number of votes needed to give him the victory in the state. The people of Georgia are angry. The people of the country are angry. And there's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. So so tell me, Brad, what are we going to do? We won the election, and it's not fair to take it away from us like this. And it's going to be very costly in many ways. And I think you have to say that you're going to reexamine it, and you can reexamine it, but, but reexamine it with people that want to find answers, not people that don't want to find answers. Now move to early Wednesday afternoon. Trump, insisting to the end that the election was stolen from him and frustrated that his conversation with Raffensperger went nowhere, held a Save America rally at the Ellipse in Washington. It was filled with defiance and anger and determination to make sure Congress would not certify the results. All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats, which is what they're doing, and stolen by the fake news media. That's what they've done and what they're doing. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. Our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore. And that's what this is all about. Now it is up to Congress to confront this egregious assault on our democracy. And after this, we're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down. Anyone you want, but I think right here, we're going to walk down to the Capitol. And we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. And we know what happened next. It was an astonishing and hateful act of undermining democracy breaking into the Capitol and overrunning the police. Chance of hang Mike Pence, the vice president who refused to accede to Trump's fantasy that he could overturn the election. Chance of where's Nancy, 
a chilling question that made one wonder about what the seditionists would do had they found her, or any member of Congress, Democrat or Republican, who had the temerity of crossing the president. People carrying the Confederate flag. One wore a Camp Auschwitz t-shirt. Another wore one that read, six million weren't enough. Madness. Blind hate. Even more infuriating, while this was going on, Trump went on camera to deal with the situation. But in dealing with it, he continued his lies and his delusions. And rather than condemning the protesters, the terrorists, he made it clear whose side he was on. I know your pain. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election, and everyone knows it, especially the other side. But you have to go home now. We have to have peace. We have to have law and order. We have to respect our great people in law and order. We don't want anybody hurt. It's a very tough period of time. There's never been a time like this where such a thing happened, where they could take it away from all of us, from me, from you, from our country. This was a fraudulent election. But we can't play into the hands of these people. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. You've seen what happens. You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel. But go home and go home in peace. Later that evening, when the insurrection was finally halted and Congress went back to its task of certifying Biden's win, it was clear that the astonishing and ugly day of insurrection did not deter Republican lawmakers from continuing their subservience to Trump and objecting to the election results. More than 100 House Republicans objected, and they were assisted in their defiance by Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, and several other senators. There were some Republicans, it should be noted, who stood for decency and the rule of law, like Utah's Mitt Romney. Now we gather due to a selfish man's injured pride and the outrage of supporters who he has deliberately misinformed for the past two months and stirred to action this very morning. What happened here today was an insurrection incited by the President of the United States. Those who choose to continue to support his dangerous gambit by objecting to the results of a legitimate democratic election will forever be seen as being complicit in an unprecedented attack against our democracy. Fairly or not, they'll be remembered for their role in this shameful episode in American history. That will be their legacy. For any who remain insistent on an audit in order to satisfy the many people who believe that the election was stolen, I'd offer this perspective. No congressional audit is ever going to convince these voters, particularly when the president will continue to say that the election was stolen. The best way we can show respect for the voters who were upset is by telling them the truth. In the end, the startling number of Republicans objecting notwithstanding, Congress certified the election results into the early hours of Thursday the 7th. But then came the debate over how to punish the president who incited the mob. Some Republicans talked about a censure. But Democrats said that wasn't enough, especially for a president who refused to take any responsibility or apologize for his rhetoric. There had to be consequences for his actions, they said. 
And so, with little time left in his presidency, the House decided to have a vote to impeach. Unlike Trump's first impeachment process, which took three months, this one, for the charge of incitement of insurrection, took just a day or so. Maryland's Jamie Raskin is one of the Democratic House impeachment managers. Smashing windows and beating police officers over the head with fire extinguishers, a bloodthirsty mob attacked the Capitol and invaded this Congress last Wednesday. They erected a gallows and repeatedly chanted, Hang Mike Pence. They stormed Speaker Pelosi's office yelling, Where's Nancy? They brandished the Confederate battle flag and occupied the Senate chamber. They wounded dozens of people, hospitalizing dozens of people, killed five of our people. For six hours, they shut down the counting of electoral college votes, our sacred process under the Constitution for peaceful transfer of power in the United States. They may have been hunting for Pence and Pelosi to stage their coup, but every one of us in this room right now could have died. As Senator Lindsey Graham said, the mob could have blown the building up. They could have killed us all. And now the far right is calling for return engagement from January 17th to January 20th. They're asking the president to pardon the conspirators in last week's rampage as they prepare for a race war again next week. And it's a bit much to be hearing that these people would not be trying to destroy our government and kill us if we just weren't so mean to them. Well, despite the floor leader's desperate effort to polarize this body and this nation along party lines, it is the chair of the Republican conference who best articulated what happened in a statement yesterday, and I recommend every American read this. Liz Cheney of Wyoming, the elected chair of the Republican conference, wrote, the president summoned this mob, assembled this mob, and lit the flame of this attack. Everything that followed was his doing. None of this would have happened without the president. The president could have immediately and forcefully intervened to stop the violence. He did not. Raskin mentioned Liz Cheney, the number three Republican in the House. While only 10 Republicans voted for impeachment, 197 voted against it. It was the largest number of lawmakers ever to vote to impeach a president of their own party. And while some celebrate that fact as evidence the House action was bipartisan, let's face it, the Republican Party is not breaking away from Donald Trump, not now or anytime soon. Many of them argued that impeachment would hurt the prospect of unifying the country, although one wonders where they were on unity while Trump fanned the flames of conspiracy for two months by insisting that the election was stolen. And then there are those Republicans who went even further, like the inimitable and often delusional Matt Gates of Florida. It seems to me that impeachment is an itch that doesn't go away with just one scratch. It also seems that President Trump may be most likely to be impeached when he is correct. Before the last presidential impeachment, President Trump rightly pointed out the improper activities of the Biden crime family, and subsequently he's been proven right. And don't think for a moment, Madam Speaker, that we're going to drop that or stop our pursuit for the truth. Before that, we had the Russia hoax, where you had the president rightly making claims that Hillary Clinton and the DNC were colluding with Russians to disorient our democracy how right he turned out to be. And then we have the 2020 presidential election, where the president correctly 
pointed out unconstitutional behavior, voting irregularities, concerns over tabulations, dead people voting, and now impeachment again. Breaching the Capitol was as low as low can be. We all denounce it. But who is it that they're kicking? The president, who created soaring highs for our economy, rising wages before the pandemic, 400 miles of wall to stop the caravans, who drew down troops in the Middle East and showed empathy for the forgotten men and women of our country. It's why so many people love him so much, and it's why they're kicking all of us. This president has faced unprecedented hatred and resistance from big media, big tech, and big egos, from congressional leaders on both sides of the aisle. In the end, Trump became the only president in history to be impeached a second time. On this vote, the ayes are 232, the nays are 197. The resolution is adopted. Without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid upon the table. Now the question of conviction and removal from office goes to the Senate, where McConnell says the matter won't be brought up until Joe Biden is president, and the Democrats have the majority. Seventeen Republican senators are going to have to join all 50 Democrats if Trump is to be convicted, which on the face of it seems beside the point. After all, Trump will already be out of office. But following a vote to convict, should that unlikely event happen, would come a separate vote that bars Trump from ever holding office again. That's why getting two-thirds of the Senate to convict Trump is not totally out of the question. But it's a long shot. Still, as I come to the close of this tragic and depressing story, there is more uncertainty ahead. There have been death threats made against members of Congress who voted to impeach. Law enforcement has sent out warnings about more right-wing marches and protests and prospective violence in the days leading up to the inauguration. And then there are those, like George's Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are not about to preach unity or sanity. Here she was on Newsmax, the channel many Trumpsters are flocking to because Fox isn't crazy enough. I would like to announce on behalf of the American people, we have to make sure that our leaders are held accountable. We cannot have a president of the United States that is willing to abuse the power of the office of the presidency um, and be easily bought off by foreign governments, uh, foreign Chinese or Chinese energy companies, Ukrainian energy companies. So on January 21st, I will be filing articles of impeachment on Joe Biden. So we wait. We wait and hope that the inauguration of Joe Biden will be peaceful and uneventful. We wait and hope that there won't be a return to violence. The January 6th assault on the Capitol was unprecedented. People looking to history to see if anything even approached it turned to the 1954 attack on the House by members of a Puerto Rican nationalist group. On that day, terrorists opened fire from the spectator gallery and wounded five congressmen, none fatally. Paul Kanjorski was for 26 years a Democratic congressman from Pennsylvania, his tenure ending in 2010, 
but back in 1954, he was a page on the floor of the house when the shooting was happening. I interviewed him several years ago on this topic, and I'm replaying that interview now. It was an average day, and we just got into average material on the floor, and then all of a sudden this cut loose in the afternoon, early afternoon, and then, of course... Uh, we 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 sort of functioned at our jobs without thinking about the long-term ramifications. But uh, later on in the day when we all got together and talked about it, it became apparent that we had lived through a significantly historical event. Well, tell me, uh, where were you that, uh, where were you when the shooting started? Um, how old were you? Who were you working for? Uh, tell me what you remember. Ah, I remember that that was in my first uh, year, or second year, I'm sorry, as a page. And uh, it was March 1st, I believe. And uh, uh, not all pages were there because that was the day the academy examinations for West Point and Annapolis, et cetera, were being held. So those that were interested in going to the academies were, were absent. So we were sort of on short shift, if you will. I was on the floor, and that means sitting in the corner back there and moving up in your seat until you get a ring on the floor to go service someone on the floor. And that's what I was doing. As a matter of fact, I was sitting in the first seat when uh, uh, the buzzer went off. I I knew where it was, got up, took about four steps, and that's when it started. And it started in such a way that it sounded like uh, firecrackers. Uh, but I realized very quickly that it was shots because as a kid, I'd uh, back in Pennsylvania, I'd spent a lot of time, you know, shooting pistols. And uh, when you hit when a when a bullet hits uh, a hard rock, it usually makes a particular ping, and it also causes the rock to shatter and fly. And that's what I felt right above my head. I heard one of the, of the cracks hit the marble column, and it sprayed me. So I, I immediately concluded it was a, a bullet of some sort hit the floor. How old were you at the time? I was uh, going on, I was 15. Wow. Do you remember the, the shooters yelling any, anything? You know, we later yeah. learned that, yeah, go ahead. They unraveled a flag and were shouting, in Spanish, I think, something about Puerto Rico independence. Uh but, but you know, I, quite frankly, I was not aware of the political circumstance in in Puerto Rico and the striving for independence there. Uh, that was the furthest thing from my mind. Then, then we were, you know, doing other things. And, of course, you know, when, when you're Paige, can you said you spend some time on the Hill. But those of us that have been fortunate enough to spend time on the Hill get an adrenaline shot from it. So everything we do is so connected to important things, you know. And at that time, things were a lot less formal than they are now, so that it wouldn't be strange to walk around a corner and walk into the president, who may be visiting for a meeting up there, because that was rather common. Of course, if it were today, that wouldn't happen. On that day, on March 1st, did you do you remember thinking that you might have been at risk of getting shot yourself? Honestly, not. Uh, uh, those shots went out. I hit the floor. I got up. I uh, went on to where the call section was. And then there were several members laying around the floor, uh, somewhat moaning. And then so I zipped right back to Bill. Bill Bill was right behind me. Bill Emerson. Yeah. 
And I said, you know, we've got some dangerous things here. Do we have any stretchers? And and we sent some other pages to get stretchers. And we started right into response mode. So we didn't really give it a lot of thought or think about our own involvement in it until it was over later on in the afternoon. When we mentioned Bill Emerson, let me just point out, he was a page with you back in the day, and then he also later served in Congress, as you did. He was a Republican from Missouri. Um, There's a famous photograph of you uh, uh, among those carrying a stretcher out of the House chamber. Um, I mean, I just remember both Bill Bill Emerson is like pointing or yelling, and you're holding up the stretcher. That, I mean, for for a 15-year-old, that must have been a surreal day. It was an issue. We carried three members out. There were five members injured, and Bill and I had a team. Well, we had about five or six pages and stretcher, and we would go in and out and carry them down to the ambulances, which were uh, in the parkade down there in front of the Capitol. And uh, then finally, when we got the last one out, uh, we uh, actually got into the ambulance and went to the hospital with them. Somebody said that you can still see the bullet holes in the House chamber and some of the desks today. Is that oh, true? yes. Yeah? The majority, uh, there's a beautiful shot that went through the t- uh, table on the on majority, well, the majority leader, minority leader, depending on the Republican side of the chamber. And it's been filled in, but it's very clear that it's a bullet hole. And then there are some other bullet holes in the ceiling that are still observable. And now they they did a pretty good patch job on the columns. For instance, the column that uh, got hit just in front of me when I got up, you really have to know that it, there was a shot fired and that's been filled in. It's it's practically totally removed. You first ran for Congress in the, in the 1980s. 1980 election, right. Special right. election. Right, and then you were elected in 84. When, when you were elected... And when you were on the House floor, did did memories of this event come back to you? Oh, there's really never a day that I go on the House floor that I don't remember that occasion, where it happened, where the location was of people. And the chamber hasn't changed that much uh, since 1954. I mean, the carpet is, you know, a different color and everything, but pretty much the chamber uh, has stayed pretty much uh, like it was then. Yeah, and... Uh, of course, you know, off and on over those last 60, you said 62 years, wow. And, of course, Bill now is deceased, but Bill and I uh, carried on a lifetime friendship. And so he stayed on the Hill and worked as a, 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 on, on the staff and then eventually as chief of staff to some of the senators. And then he ran in 80 and I ran in 80. Uh, he, he was a Republican. I was a Democrat. He won. I lost and uh, didn't come back for another four years. But then we spent, you know, the next 20, not 20, but about 15 years together uh, telling stories about what happened and enjoyed ourselves. No, it was it was sort of those weird things that you have a childhood friendship. See, we were also roommates, and we were really best of friends. And, uh, he traveled to my home at vacations. I traveled to his home. We visited each other in college, in law school. You know, it was a long-term. I remember bringing my wife up to meet him right after he got married. He was in Washington. So we had a real long, involved friendship. And then Joanne uh, served with me after Bill died. Joanne, uh, Bill Emerson's widow, yes. Right, and uh, she was a wonderful girl. But we were all 
very, very, very close. I watched all his children grow up, and of course, when he died, uh, went to his funeral in Missouri, and uh, it, and it, it was Puerto Rico has a special meaning to me because of that event now, and I imagine that won't leave me until my my days are over. So, the attack on the house by five Puerto Rican nationalists or terrorists came nearly 67 years ago. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. And speaking of the store, the new Political Junkie t-shirts are in, with all sizes available. Get yours now before it's too late. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at The Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. I hope you continue fighting for honesty and fairness in this country. But most of all, please stay safe. I'll see you soon.